Good morning. It's great to be with you again. We again want to welcome all of our guests who've joined us today. Uh, if you got a bulletin on your way in this morning, if you would open it up, and on the inside there's an insert uh, that says a team effort, and uh, this is some great reading material for during the sermon, uh, this, this insert. That there's, no, seriously, there's, there's lots of great information there about our church and our heart for God's mission. Uh, we have a special day coming up in a few Sundays called Harvest Sunday, and on that day we give and we pledge to give for the next year um, to God's mission. And our, our goal this year is $350,000 pledged and given, uh, and that's a, that's a huge goal. And yet, in some ways, it's, it's a drop in the bucket of all the things that we believe God wants to do in this world uh, as Jesus, through us and, and beyond us, uh, still seeks uh, to find all, all who are, are far off and who need to come home to God. And so we want to be a part of that. We want to give sacrificially to that. And, and so if you're a guest and you're not going to be here on Harvest Sunday, at least that insert gives you some sense of this church and, and our passion for God's mission. Uh, and for those of you who are going to be here on Harvest Sunday, we want you to be prayerfully considering how you're going to, to partner with us in that. Uh, as Josh, our high school minister, mentioned, we're continuing our series this morning that we're calling Open. Uh, we have some notebooklets that hopefully you were able to get on your way in this morning. Uh, there's a space there for uh, kind of an official definition that I'll be giving later in the sermon about what feasting is. And then there's some, some basic steps on how to live with that practice this week. And so really encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to pick one up on your way in, uh, please do so on your way out. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your son. We thank you for this family that your son calls us into through the cross, this, this community that we get to be a part of, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done and what you continue to do in our lives with mercy and grace. God, I ask that in the next few minutes as we open your word together, and as we listen to what it is that, that you're going to, to give us through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that we, would, that we would be open. I pray that we would be willing to hear what it is that you want us to hear. God, we're here because we believe that we still need to change. That we're thankful for the ways that you love us and the ways that you forgive us. And because of that, because of that gratitude, God, we're here for you to continue that good work in us. So be with us, partner with us, help us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The, the best meals in my life, they all involve food, obviously, but it's, it's never really about the food. It's about who I'm with. It's, it's about why we're together sharing that meal. Good food obviously makes those kinds of experiences even better. But in the end, food in and of itself, it, it just it kind of sets the table for a kind of fellowship, a kind of connection that can take place around a table. When I was growing up, almost every Sunday morning, I would wake up to the smell of beef roasting in the oven. And that, 
<laughs> that fragrance was a promise. And it was a promise that later that day after church, my parents would be hosting someone at our house for Sunday lunch. And it's not like every day of the week we were the Waltons, but on Sundays we tried really hard. And I, I, I didn't know who was going to come because my parents made a, a habit. They, they tried really hard to make sure that whoever they invited to have over for lunch hadn't been in our home before. So sometimes it was you know, visitors that were new to church and didn't know anyone else. Sometimes it was out-of-town guests that they were going to have to go to a restaurant or something and not be with anybody, so my parents would invite them over. Sometimes it was some hungry college students who my parents knew they, they really probably hadn't had a home-cooked meal in a little while. There were other times it was an elderly uh, couple or a group of elderly members from our church that my mom figured probably didn't cook a lot for themselves anymore. I, I can't remember all the faces, and I, I certainly can't remember all the names, and I, I definitely don't remember beyond that pot roast what else we would eat at those meals. But I do remember how it felt. I remember how good it felt to be able to welcome all of those different people into our home and to sit around our family dinner table and, and just to share stories and to get to know each other and, and finding that just in the course of a single meal, you, you could go from not knowing someone at all to wanting to see them again. <laughs> Lauren and I, several years ago, were ministering in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we lived literally next door to the church building. And so my commute was a short walk from our house up to the church office. And I, I will never forget a particular early morning when I was, I was walking from our house to the church, and, and the building was surrounded by a bed of ivy. And I always wondered what was in the ivy. Um, and I didn't like to think, because you'd hear it rustle sometimes. And so I'm walking up, and it, the, the rustling's really loud. And it's, you know, the sun's up, and I want to believe that I can handle not being afraid, and so I hear all this movement in the ivy, and so I decide, okay, I'm tired of, of running from this thing, whatever it is. I'm going to confront it. This morning's the morning. And so I start to get closer to where I'm hearing this rustling in the ivy, and I literally almost step on a person who is wrapped up in a dark green sleeping bag. And I, I startle him, and he startles me back, and I step back, and he starts to crawl out of this, this sleeping bag, and he looks exhausted and tired and confused and angry. And he's looking at me through these, these pale blue eyes. And for a second, I don't know what to do. And then I start to think about my parents and, and what, what my, my mom or what, what would my dad do in this moment. And, and I'd seen my parents interact with people that they didn't know before. And I knew what my parents would do. And so I just suddenly asked him if he'd had anything to eat in a while. And he said, no, I haven't had anything in a few days. And I said, well, where, where would you like to go to breakfast? And of all the places he could have picked to go to breakfast, he chose Jack in the Box. And so, 10 minutes later, 
we're in Jack in the Box, and I got to be honest, I'm having a hard time dealing with how he smells and how our food tastes. And we're sitting in this, this hard plastic booth together, and everyone else in that place is trying to pretend they're not staring at us. All the workers suddenly find reasons to come out and help serve at our table and make sure I'm okay. And he's eating, and I'm watching him eat, and I'm trying to eat, and finally, you know, I'm trying to start a conversation with him, and I just, I just said, would you just tell me a little bit about you? Tell me your story. And for the next 30 minutes, he did. And he told me this sad turn of events of how he went from having a good life that he felt like he was proud of to losing his family and struggling with mental illness and getting to the place where he didn't have anywhere else to go and he had no one else to turn to. And as I'm listening to him share the story, suddenly the jack-in-the-box food doesn't matter anymore. And, and I realize just how hard so many people in our world have it and I start to think, well, what am I supposed to do? What, what do I do after this? And so I, I think, well, I know of this homeless shelter that's not too far from the church, so I'm going to take him there. And I ask him if he wants to go, and he says, yeah, it'd be nice to have a place to clean up and pull himself together. And so I drive him to this homeless shelter, and the whole time I'm thinking, there's got to be something else I can do. There's, there's got to be, but I can't think of anything. And we get there, and, and we get out of the car, and... I reach out to, to shake his hand, and instead of that, he, he pulls me into a hug. And he says, thank you. And I wish I could tell you that I said, you know what, let's, let's do something. Let, you don't need to be here. Let's, let's try to find you. But I, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't have an imagination for what else to do. And so I just, I gave him a hug back, and then I said, I I hope everything goes well. And I got back into my car and I drove away. And I, I still think about him. This was years ago. And I still worry about him. And I, I find myself in those moments praying, asking God to be better to him, to be a better friend to him than I was. Right? That, that God didn't just leave him somewhere and walk away from him and hope that everything went okay. That that hopefully he ran into other people in his life that would stop and help him. And not just share a meal with him, but share life with him. It had nothing to do with the food. All we shared together really was a conversation over a simple meal that, that really, if I'd had a choice, I wouldn't have chosen to eat there. But I'm telling you, I'll never forget that meal, and I'll never forget him. And I'll never get over the longing of of feeling that connection with him from one heart to another and then not knowing how to take a next step, not knowing what else to do. And I'm not saying that I on my own could have somehow rescued him from everything that he was going through in his life, but I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that that meal could have been the beginning of a friendship instead of just a, a moment between two strangers. The best kinds of meals that we have in life aren't about the food. They're about the connection. They're about the fellowship that the food makes possible. We know that. 
We've experienced it. You, you have your own stories of certain aromas that, that you would smell growing up, and you knew that, that that fragrance, that scent was a promise of a certain kind of interaction with your family or your friends. And you remember how those meals made you feel. And it's hard sometimes to put it into words. It's hard for us to describe it. We know that the, the food matters, that it's, it's important, but, but not because of, of how it tastes. The food matters because it, it sets the stage, right? The, the table becomes a place where something sacred can happen. Christian author Martha Stern shares her own story about how food creates that space we need to experience something sacred when she writes, My great aunts were very different women. One talked and sang and made us laugh. The other, shy and gentle, mostly listened, a secretary in a bank, and a clerk in an insurance company, not movers and shakers in the world, just small world makers, shapers of a small world, of free and friendly space where one could give and one could receive, where the decor never changed except to grow shabbier, and it didn't matter, where the cuisine was, shall we say, limited, and it didn't matter. Cokes were kind of their best dish. But none of that mattered, because I knew that I did. I mattered. I counted. We've all had moments like that in our lives, where we're suddenly blessed by this free and friendly space that Martha Stern's trying to talk about, a space and time where we feel, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we matter, that we count, that we're, that we're welcome at this place. We've all had meals where the wor- world really does seem to be as big as, as that moment in time, as that table that we're sitting down together at. And we, we feel like the most important people to us are with us. And the guards come down. And we stop trying to pretend that we're someone that we're not. And we... We share our feelings and our thoughts freely and without fear. I don't think those kinds of of spiritually connected mealtimes happen on their own or by accident. And I also don't think that you and I can just make them happen whenever we want to. Now, I think any time that we're around a table and we have this experience where we're not just sharing thoughts or, or words, but we're sharing hearts, we're sharing our lives, that when that happens, we can anticipate it and we can wait for it. But when, when those moments unfold, there is someone bigger than us, there is someone better than us that we need to say thank you to. Because we can't force those moments to unfold. We can simply bear witness to them. And we have to make the decision when we see them in front of us, when we feel that that's what's happening, we make the decision to partner with God. We make the decision to reach out and connect in in a way that, that God makes possible. It leads us to this week's spiritual practice definition of feasting. Feasting is sharing in meals where everyone matters, And everyone belongs because Jesus is present at the table with us. Sharing in meals where everyone matters and everyone belongs because Jesus is present at the table with us. Look, even though we don't always realize it, tables, they don't just have to be kind of boring places where we're stuck having moments of caloric intake. Tables through God's power, can become a kind of a spiritual 
threshold, a kind of a sacred doorway where Jesus himself steps through and right into our mundane, ordinary lives and helps us see what the world could be. If, it may only be for a fleeting handful of minutes, but we're, we're able at that table and with somebody else at that table, we're, we're able to be transformed where God can help us taste and see the way things should be. When you look throughout the Bible, you find important transformative moments happening to God's people while they're gathered around meals. The the Passover is one of those early meals where we find God's people being able to, to draw closer not only to one another, but also as they draw closer to one another, to God and God's presence, God's holy hope that that he wants them to experience and not just see in the world around them, but to see in them as a people. As time passes, Jesus enters into our world, and one of the most important pieces of furniture in Jesus' ministry is not a pulpit, it's a table. It's a place where everybody matters and everybody belongs, and the only person who gets to edit the invitation list is Jesus, which means there's all these people gathered together at the table who don't actually think the other people should get to come to the table. You've got religious leaders mixed in with people who have strikingly sinful reputations in that community. In in any other place, they wouldn't choose to share a table. But Jesus says, if you want to draw close to me, then you're going to have to be with one another. In some ways, he says, if you want to have me in your life, you're going to have to find a way to put up with one another. And hopefully, in finding out how to put up with one another, you may find out that you, you share some things in common. Not just this table and not just the hunger for for me to be close to you and in your life, but you're going to find something else entirely that connects you that maybe you couldn't have anticipated. And then in the last week of his life, Jesus invites his, his closest friends around a table, and one of those friends is getting ready to betray him, and yet he's still invited to that table. And Jesus takes that old Passover meal, where God's people primarily remembered what God had done. And he says, it's, it's not just about remembering, it's about reliving, it's about re-experiencing, reenacting this God who didn't just used to do things like this, but still comes into our world and into our lives to do things just like this, to set us free from all the things that hold us back. And of all the things that hold our world back, Can't we understand that one of the the things that's really enslaving all of us is the fact that we don't know how to get along? The fact that we don't know how to hold on to one another when we also hold on to significant disagreements that Jesus says, if you want a future, it's not just about a a past of, of, of what God used to do. It's about what God is getting ready to do. It's about what God's already doing, and you're missing it because you're so focused on other things that don't matter nearly as much. And then after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection in the book of Acts, over and over and over again, we find that the fact that Jesus' first followers understood That even though after the cross and the resurrection, Jesus shows up so often in invisible ways, ways that we have to work to see and understand, every single time the church gathers together for a meal, there's this expectation that Jesus is there too. That Jesus somehow steps into their lives and takes a seat at that table again. 
and that their relationship with him, it somehow heals their relationships with each other. Over and over again, we find in Scripture this anticipation that, that the most important piece of furniture in our faith, it's not a pulpit, it's a table. Any meal where we gather together and we hope that Jesus is going to be present is also a meal where, where Jesus' values have to shape our actions. If, if Jesus wants tables and meals to be a place in the world where everyone matters and everybody belongs, then that's the grace-filled kind of welcome that, that we have to learn how to reach and reside in together. The best meals in life aren't really about the food. They're about the fellowship that the food makes possible. And this is especially true during the communion meal that we share together every single week. The first century church in the ancient city of Corinth had lost their way when it came to understanding what Jesus wanted the, the Lord's Supper to actually be. What, what Jesus wanted the Lord's Supper to actually do among them. Jesus wants the Lord's Supper to be this kingdom feast where everybody matters and everybody belongs, where everybody has enough. And, and if somebody has more than enough, they, they share with somebody who, do, who doesn't yet have enough, right? This is what Jesus wants. It's, it's not just the, the kind of meal Jesus wants, it's the kind of world Jesus wants. And so he thinks it's very important for us not just to remember that he said that, but he wants us to relive, he wants us to re-experience, he wants us to reenact that this is the kind of people we are. Well, they, they end up looking at what Jesus talks about in the Gospels and about the, the Last Supper that becomes the Lord's Supper, and they decide that the most important thing is simply that they gather together regularly and they, they have a meal together. How they have that meal isn't all that important to them. They're not really paying attention to it. And so they turn the, the Lord's Supper into a, a very specific kind of Roman public meal where you'd gather together in a public space, but the expectation was that every family would bring what they had to eat. It, it's like a picnic meal, or, or I guess in a more informal way, we'd call it a, a brown bag lunch, right? Where everybody brings their own food. You know, if you're anything like me, you go to those lunches, and you've either grabbed greasy fast food, or you made like a peanut butter and honey sandwich that was good four hours ago when you made it, but is now all stuck together and not that good. And then somebody else comes, and they clearly took like 35 minutes to make the best sandwich you've ever seen in your life. And while they eat it, your jealousy grows. Okay, now, there was a very common way of having a public meal where that's exactly what took place and for whatever reason the church in Corinth decides that's what Jesus wanted that's the kind of meal Jesus wanted them to have when they came together and what's happening is there's people in that church that bring so much to the public meal that they have enough to eat way too much and to drink way too much in the presence of other church families who literally have nothing to bring. And so you have people who are having to, to loosen their belts and 
And on the other end of that same table, you have people who are having to tighten their belts. And, and what Paul can't understand is how any follower of Christ would have the audacity to call that by Jesus' name. And he says, you guys may say that that's the Lord's Supper, but it's not. Because a feast where some people have way too much and some people don't have their basic needs, please don't drag Jesus' name through that. Open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're starting together in verse 20. So then when you come together, even though you call it this, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Man, that is some strong, strong language, right? He's telling church members, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I, I want to point out to you the importance of him saying, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. There's a lot of different ways to describe that night. On the night he was betrayed, he said, This is for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, it's not just about remembering. It's about reliving. It's about anticipation, about the future. It's reenactment. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Now, as bad as things have gotten during the, the Corinthian church's celebration of the Lord's Supper, I think it's very important for us to understand that as bad as it's gotten, Paul is not willing to get rid of the meal. Now, I'd be tempted to be like, you, you guys have you've gotten so confused about what this is about, why don't you just stop? Just stop entirely. You've made a mockery of this. Don't do this anymore. That's, Paul does not believe that the answer to celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that's not faithful to Jesus' kingdom vision of a feast, that you just you get rid of the meal. Instead, he takes very careful time and intention to say, no, 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 no. You're, you need to keep sharing in a meal together, but this is how. 
This is, this is why. You, you've missed the mark. You've, you've made some mistakes here. But we've got to try this again. See, Paul is, is sure that, that the church needs the experience of gathering together around a table and living out the gospel truth that, that not a single one of us, except for Jesus, gets to decide who's invited. It's not your invitation. It's not my invitation. Brothers and sisters, I want to be clear about this. It's not even the church's invitation. It is God's invitation. God calls people to this moment. God calls people to this feast. I love that about the churches of Christ and our tradition of open communion. Right? I love the fact that we trust that we aren't the ones who extend that invitation. And therefore, we're not the ones who have to make sure whether or not you're welcome. That's, that's not our role. Our role is to decide whether or not we want to accept Christ's welcome and come to this table once again. Now, Paul talks about this kingdom feast. And the, the core of what he wants this feast to be is that everybody matters and everybody belongs and, and in that same reality that everybody is given what they need, that everybody's taken care of. Paul wants them to not just remember what Jesus said on the night he was betrayed. Paul wants them to, to re-experience and reenact the, the, the fact that every single moment, and especially in a moment of awareness, we are grateful for the mercy that we are given. And the same mercy that we are given is given to everybody else. And, and we want to witness that. We want to bear witness to that. We want to partner with that grace and that mercy. Over the centuries, we've lost most of the full mealtime experience of the Lord's Supper that the first century church participated in. It's become something that's more formal and mostly individual. It's a weekly place in our worship gathering where most of us try our best to remember the sacrifice Jesus made for us and, and then to silently recommit ourselves to following him and and while it is certainly important for us on a regular basis to remember and to recommit, I, I wonder, I wonder how much we've lost in walking away from the Lord's Supper being celebrated as a family meal at a table rather than a pinch of unleavened bread and a sip of grape juice taken in pews, in rows, in silence, except for a little collective singing. For some reasons, and a lot of reasons, that we don't have the time to fully explore this morning, the churches of Christ and the vast majority of, of Christian groups made the decision long ago, and I want you to hear this, because I want to be as clear as possible, churches made the decision long ago that the elements of unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, taken in the context of a worship service, Taken on a regular basis in our tradition, that means on a weekly basis, that's what matters more than anything else when it comes to communion. An actual table has been traded out for a privatized spiritual confession booth of the heart where I confess my sins to God and ask for mercy and promise to be better. And I understand why that kind of interaction with God is important and is a part of our spiritual journeys. But I wonder, 
I mean, if, if it really is true that the best meals we have in this life aren't really about the food, but rather they're about the kind of fellowship that the food makes possible, what all have we lost in getting rid of the family table and the kinds of free and friendly conversations that can take place there? There's a, there's a book that was written a few years ago that's been really helpful to me, a conversation partner, as I think about what, what is it that matters most when it comes to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. It's written by a, a Church of Christ professor and theologian named John Mark Hicks, and the book is simply titled, Come to the Table. And we're going to share a couple of quotes from that book in a few moments, but I, I want, as we stay in 1 Corinthians 11, to point out that verse 29, where it says, discerning the body, those, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Growing up in the church, I always assumed that, that discerning the body meant me thinking by myself privately about Jesus' body on the cross. Being thankful for that, being motivated by it. But the more I've studied this passage, the more obvious it is that Paul means church in this context when he says the body of Christ. Now, when he's talking about the the bread and and the wine, he says the body and the blood. But when he says the body of Christ, and that's the statement he makes, and he doesn't connect the blood, he's, he's talking to us about the church. Hicks explains, to discern the body is to partake of the supper in a way that bears witness to not only the unity of the body of Christ, the church, but also to the fellowship of that body. The problem is not, I want you to listen to this, the problem is not that the Corinthians did not quietly and privately think about the cross. The problem was that they didn't embody the cross in a communal way at the table. In other words, the problem isn't that they didn't think about Jesus. The problem is all they did was think about Jesus. And they didn't live like Jesus. They didn't treat one another like Jesus as they were thinking about Jesus. The problem is that the the Corinthians were more interested in the spiritual symbolism of the Lord's Supper than they were focused on how they actually treated one another during the Lord's Supper. It wasn't a feast where everyone mattered, shared around a table where everyone belonged. It was a place, I want to be clear about this because this is a little uncomfortable to me, it was a place where individuals tried to privately commune with God through food and drink while actively ignoring one another. Does that sound familiar? And it sounds painfully familiar to me. They had turned the Lord's Supper into a place where individuals tried to privately commune with God through food and drink while they actively ignored the other people in the room. Later, Hicks writes, if the Corinthians used the supper to maintain social distinctions in their culture, right, the haves and the have-nots, modernity, we, have transformed the supper into a private event. Both deny the communal character of the table. If the Corinthians needed to wait for everyone to come to the table for the meal, the modern church needs to restore the meal, the table as a meal. Now, There are all kinds of reasons that we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper as a full meal around a single table every week. Most of the reasons have to do with logistics. It would take too much time, require too much food, and take too much space. I mean, I get it. I understand it. I understand why we celebrate the Lord's Supper the way that we do. 
But I wonder, I wonder what all we've lost in getting rid of the family table and the free and friendly conversations that can happen there. And I wonder what might change if instead of being irritated about the fact that there's somebody else in the room that you have to deal with, what if we believed that of all the times in a worship service where I should pay attention to you, and you should pay attention to me, it's when we gather together around our family meal. I'm going to ask those of you who have prepared to serve us that meal, if you would, to go ahead and go to the back of the room now. You know, a lot of times uh, you preach a sermon like this and you think you're just trying to get people to kind of think about what we do all the time and maybe we do it without thinking. And then you try to, to cover way too much and not nearly enough time. Because if you've been doing this, like me, I've, I've, I've been taking communion virtually every Sunday since I was 13 years old. And it's hard to get you to rethink something you've been doing for most of your life. But here's, here's what I want us to do as we, as we share in this family meal this morning. Instead of trying your best as we, we take that unleavened bread and as we take the fruit of the vine, instead of trying to do your very best to pretend you're by yourself, you just happen to be around other people, I want you to be, I want your heart and your mind and your soul to be open to the fact that you don't just happen to be in this room with other people. You're in this room with other people because God wants you to be. And that, for one week at least, don't get irritated if a little kid starts talking or start noticing that there's some other people coughing. You're not by yourself. You knew that, right? Okay. Um, you know, we don't have any tradition in the churches of Christ of interacting with one another during communion. When we tried a little bit a few years ago, several years ago now, I guess, we tried to do something communal during communion, which is to sing a song together. You don't even have to get up and talk to anybody. We just sing a song together, and people get frustrated that the song is distracting them from pretending they're alone. You're here with other people on purpose. And the meal is not the time for you to, to try to, to get away from all the, the other people in your life who make life challenging and difficult and hard and, and try to think, oh, it's just me and, and God, it's just me and Jesus. Your time in the morning where you're by yourself studying Scripture, that's for you and Jesus. That's not communion, not the meal. Communion is supposed to be the place where we do the hard work of welcoming one another when that's not always easy. I'm not going to tell any stories, but I promise you, I know enough stories to know that there's somebody in this room that you, you might have a difficulty with. 
Or if they're not in this church auditorium, they're in a church auditorium somewhere. And they're the last person you want to think about when you're trying to pretend like you're alone with Jesus. Because they make it hard to keep your promises to Jesus, to be patient and kind and to be merciful and forgiving. And so you think, Jared, you know, I come to church and I want to get away from all that. And you're telling me I got to deal with all that? Yes. And I'm telling you the place we deal with it's at the table. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As we pass this bread, I want you to think about the person that you wish didn't belong to the church. They may not go to this church. They probably do. But they may not go to this church. And before you take that piece of bread, you make a decision. And that is, by taking this piece of bread, I, I am confessing to God and to everybody around me who watches me take that bread that they deserve God's grace and mercy just as much as I do. And that I want to be a living reminder of that to them. That I won't take a piece of Christ's broken body while I ignore the people in Christ's body whose brokenness has hurt me. So before you take it, it doesn't hurt to think about Jesus' sacrifice. But before you take it, in addition to Jesus' sacrifice, you need to think about those people that you'd rather not think of and say, this is, I'm accepting this invitation of grace and I'm accepting it as a promise that I will extend that grace to them because this is a kingdom meal and everybody matters and everybody belongs and nobody's perfect yet except for Jesus. Nobody's perfect yet, and everybody matters, and everybody belongs. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, and we thank you for family, and for friendship, and for community, and we thank you for asking us to learn how to not only put up with one another, but how to see you in one another in spite of shortcomings and mistakes and words that we wish we could take back and words we wish we could forget and actions we wish had never happened. God, we want this moment to not only be a time where we try to reach out to you and commune with you, we want this time to be a shared meal where we commune with one another. And God, you know every single person in this room has somebody they're avoiding, somebody that they'd rather not have to admit gets invited to the same table. God, I I ask that you would raise that face, that you would raise that name in their hearts, and that you would help them begin the world-reconciling work of, of participating in a body that was broken for us, that heals all of our brokenness, and especially heals our broken relationships. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. God, I pray that you would continue this work in us as we take the fruit of the vine, that you would help us to be people who don't ever want to get to the place where we're pretending that that there aren't other people around us who need you and are hurting and maybe that we have have given up on or that that we have hurt. And we I, I just pray, God, that you would knit our hearts together that you would help us understand that 
that the amazing thing about your forgiveness is not just that I'm forgiven. The amazing thing about your forgiveness is that we're forgiven. And we want to we want to help each other experience it. So God, please use this meal not as an escape, but as a bridge that that we can use to draw closer to one another as we draw close to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you might think that one of the possible reactions to Paul's letter is, okay, fine, we aren't going to share in a, in a meal together. We'll just, we'll just kind of barely eat anything. And, and if we're going to eat much at all, we'll, we'll do that just in our homes. Like Paul says at one point, look, if, if you want to have that kind of party, just do it in your homes. But treat each other differently around the Lord's table. The response that, that most congregations gave to that was not to just stop for, for the wealthy people to stop bringing food, it was for them to stop keeping it just to themselves. And so we know that the earliest kinds of offering, the earliest kinds of contribution, were where the wealthiest people in the church would now bring more than enough food for themselves on purpose, and they would share that at that table together. And they would let people who came who didn't have much of anything take things home to take care of them during the week and beyond. It's not the Lord's Supper if you and I aren't asked to share. If all we're asked to do is to take, it's not the Lord's Supper we're eating. And, and that's why we, we do the offering at Southern Hills. That's why we do the offering, the adult offering, right here while we're sti- still gathered around the table because it's our first opportunity as those who in so many ways have too much can find a way to give in the hopes that God will use that offering to bless people who don't have enough. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for this community and every person in this room and every person who belongs to your church. And we know that some of us have been blessed financially in ways that others haven't. And we don't want to be insensitive to that. We don't want to be ignoring that or trying not to think about that. We, we want to partner with you in helping to address it, helping to fix it. And God, while we give to church and we sometimes wonder where all it goes and, and we question that well, are all the decisions, the exact decisions that I'd be making, God, we just, I pray that when I give, that I release that gift to you and I trust that you will use it through dedicated servants, that, you, that you'll use it to help people who need it most. God, this, this offering is an act of celebration. It's an act of hope. It's an act of trust. And I pray that you would use it for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.